Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Today, my guest is Sarah Morgan. Sarah is a multimedia journalist and a second lieutenant in the Army Reserve. Her background is in news and reporting, having formerly worked at local news stations and the Associated Press. This interview was an effort to make her the focal point of a story. We talk about what it takes to make it as a journalist. Behind the scenes of every news story you read or watch, there's hours and hours of prep work that all comes together to build a fluid story. Inputs from text to photos, videos, and the verbal spoken story. Sarah really emphasizes that people are the true drivers of stories. Asking the question, why do I care, is part of her process when piecing a story together. A question that takes on new meaning when she got to embed with troops out of South Carolina that ultimately led to her decision to join the Army. We discussed the state of news and reporting today. It was intriguing to speak with somebody in such an important industry, but one that is actively being disrupted by different forms of media on top of generational differences in how we consume stories and content. This conversation is what I would probably call punchy. In true reporting fashion, Sarah thinks and responds quickly, and she really kept me on my toes. At a few points, I thought that I may have been the one being interviewed, not the other way around, likely the sign of a great reporter. Please enjoy this conversation with Sarah Morgan. Sarah, I would love for you to start out this conversation with telling me and the listeners what is maybe the most memorable event, good or bad, that you've ever covered or been a part of. Absolutely. Um, Over a decade in the business, it's almost impossible to pinpoint just one. I mean, um, there are countless, countless stories that I've been privileged to cover in the US and even around the world. Um, Most recently though, probably the most memorable for me was uh, coming home right after basic training, the Associated Press sent me to uh, the Southern border. And and we all remember that viral photo um, that came out in the fall of the incident between border patrol and a Haitian migrant. And I was waist deep in the Rio Grande about 20 feet from that when it happened. And when it occurred, it was so quick that it almost didn't register. And it wasn't until going through that footage afterward that you realize, you know, what you just witnessed. Um, But that was kind of one of those moments where I was on the shore on the Mexican side of the border. And there was one photographer, two photographers that started jumping in the water. And I was like, heck, I'm getting into. So you put your camera over your head, you pull up your pants a little bit and you just wait on in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> part of the uh, part of the job. I've always like been interested or like to talk to um, not really your neck of the woods, but people who like storm chase. They're like deep in like these weird rivers. And I kind love of, like, doing that. Yeah. Really. And when I started out, I was working in in Texas at the end of Tornado Alley, and I love doing that. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you know my path, but I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> That seems to be consistent with your story that I know of so far. A little bit. <laughs> what 
what is going through your head when you're trying to put together and put on a story? Uh, like you said, you kind of didn't really maybe know what was happening in that particular moment. Is that consistent with a lot of stories? Is, is your mind just focused on like, okay, what is the watcher experiencing? And, and are you so hyper-focused on what they are rather than actually experiencing it yourself? Yeah, I would say that in my head, I'm always trying to um, piece the story together as I'm out there. And especially when I'm doing the video and the reporting. Um, so I have to think about, you know, the shots and, you know, which one is going to flow to the next. Um, but for me as a journalist, the most important thing is finding a person and a character to tell uh, that story through their eyes, because a story is not going to be compelling and a, a person isn't going to want to watch it or read, uh, read it if it, there's not someone that they can connect with. So to me, when I'm out in the field gathering information, I'm always searching for that. Why do I care? And that always comes through a person. It doesn't come through me. It doesn't come through officials. It's that person. In your no doubt like long history and study of the art of journalism, are there stories that maybe stand out to you where there aren't people involved? Absolutely. Or like the, the impact isn't like the impact is still there without the the person element. Yeah. And sometimes it's just through the images. And and that is um that's where you have to step aside and let the images tell the story. And also your writing, um, kind of describe what you saw, what's going on, because sometimes you're at a scene or a situation where um, people don't want to talk to you. That happens more times than it doesn't. Um, and for me, I've never been the type to be super invasive. If someone says no, they say no, I don't keep pushing. Because a lot of times, as cliche as it sounds, um, I'm going to talk to somebody on the worst day of their lives. And I'm not going to be intrusive if I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell your story. If you say no, you say no. Um, and then I have to figure out other ways to convey the emotion of that scene. And that can either be through the images or through your writing. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it takes to get into journalism? I know that that's a degree that's available in school and in this modern internet age, there are so many different ways that we consume content. We're reading, we're watching, we're, you know, just being stimulated in all these ways. And, and you handle multiple of those fronts, like simultaneously, what type of training and like preparation is going into put all of those in like different balls and you're kind of juggling them all simultaneously to put together one cohesive story. I will say that the nation's uh, most prestigious journalism enclaves probably will disagree with my answer, but I am not a product of one of them. Um, who is, just so we know, who is the most prestigious enclave? Uh, you've got your Northwesterns, you've got your Mizzou's, Arizona, uh, uh, Syracuse. Those are your powerhouses, I would say, in the journalism world. Um, I went to a, a very small private school that no one's ever heard of. So that didn't really have much of a journalism program. So I had to rely on internships, um, which, you know, you, everyone has internships, but for me, they were critical because that's all I had. Um, and it was very much on the job training, even after my internships, the first six months of my first job in television, I was 
clueless. Um, and then one day it kind of, kind of flips and you find mentors that um, can give you feedback because in small market television, you're not, unless you're messing up, you're not always getting feedback. Um, and that's kind of how you get better. But I would say this business is less about where you go to school and more about your work ethic um, and your desire for the job. I mean, when I graduated in 2011, I would have done anything um, to, I would have worked, I probably, I mean, maybe not, but I'm, it's safe to say I would have worked for freaking free because um, that's how badly I wanted it. Um, but I hustled and I moved to a place I had never heard of um, and it paid off. You said that you wanted it so badly you would have worked for free. What talk to me about that drive? What is it that says I want to rush towards danger and like be in the center of all of these like potentially threatening to life or whatever circumstances to basically provide people entertainment at home? It's more than that, but and I'm oversimplifying it. I it's a very necessary field. What what's fueling that drive to, to want to fill that role? I think, you know, that's a great question and I can't pinpoint it to one thing. Um, a lot of it was me not wanting to have a job that was the same every single day. Um, but another part of it was just wanting to be that conduit, that, um, voice for it, it sounds so cliche because we journalists use it all the time but it, it, it when I started out and still it's true like I wanted to be the voice for the people who nobody listens to um and especially in local news and I have specific examples even last week that is the case I mean you put a story on local news a problem that nobody cares about I did a story last week on a man who, who has become a good friend of mine who was sleeping in a crawl space for three months because um, of some huge affordable housing issues in the city of Charlotte. And now he's getting an apartment. So that, that doesn't always happen, but it's those little things where like, okay, I can make a difference. Um, or if it's not gonna be me, maybe I can get it to the right person that can make a difference. As the reporter or the person who's bringing the stories, how much selection do you have and power slash authority over what is covered? That's you a know, great question. Saying, saying things like, I want to be reporting on stories that like nobody cares about implies that you have some kind of discretion over what is seen and watched. Absolutely. That hasn't always been the case, though. Um, so I've been in this business for 10 years. I did more than half of it um, in local news, either in Lubbock, Texas or Charlotte. Then I went to an international news organization, the AP, and I'm back in Charlotte for the time being. Um, so because I'm back, I have a little bit more say. I have, um, I've proven myself a little bit more so that they trust when I say, hey, this is going to make a good story. They trust me. But that takes time in a newsroom. You you have to uh, prove yourself with that. Um, and starting out, and even not starting out, when you're on the daily grind, when you're turning a story every single day, it's often you know what's going on. Okay, there's a homicide. Okay, you know there's something at city council. Um, those are the days that like it 
I didn't really have a say. I would come in with ideas, but that's not always what you're going to be doing for the day. And what makes a good journalist is, okay, I'm going to go to the city council meeting, but let me figure out a way to make people care about this thing that seemingly seems boring. What does a day in the life of a journalist look like? I mean, we're watching TV kind of, there's always something news going on. There's always something big to, to happen and find out. What is like a, a typical day look like for you? Maybe when you first started versus now, um, what kind of hours I'm imagining you just kind of furiously typing and like writing and getting ready, like kind of at weird hours of the night. Is that really all it's, all it's cracked up to be? It is what you, what most people believe they see as a journalist, especially as a TV journalist, it's a complete opposite. Like, I can't tell you how many times, even just recently at my CrossFit gym, my coach asked, oh, so what about your makeup person? And I was like, makeup person, are you kidding me? Like, it's me in the rear view mirror, like doing my mascara 30 seconds before I jump in front of the camera. And as uh, television station ownership groups have gotten inevitably cheaper, uh, staffs decrease. And that was the creation of what we call a multimedia journalist. That's someone who shoots, writes, edits their own stuff. Um, so that's what I started, what I still do some of. Um, and I'm schlepping around the camera. I'm doing all of that. There's no photographer. It's just me. I do my interview. I come in, get the story, go out, do my interviews, log it all, uh, write the story, voice it, edit it, and then it's on TV and you probably do two to three versions of that. Um, and that's within an eight hour period. So it is, it's a grind, it's tough. And that's why, especially recently, there's been a mass exodus um, from this business, especially with this younger generation coming up because you're doing a lot of work for a very small paycheck. I mean, I was making 23,000 my, my first uh, market. And if I wouldn't have had my mom to help me, there's no way I could have survived. And, and that's largely dis, uh, detrimental to a lot of newsrooms um, nowadays, because that, you know, instantly takes out a group um, who, you know, maybe they don't, they aren't able to have their parents support. So um, there's, there in, within, I can go off on a tangent all day, but within the TV news industry right now, there's definitely some issues that need to be resolved about pay and work because I think this younger generation is like, eh, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go work in PR and make more money. Right. I have a couple questions about like just the industry generally and where news is headed as a whole, but from like early beginning starting out you what is like what is making it in journalism is it making it to you know like good morning america like you're you're covering the news at in times square or whatever like is that what the the pinnacle of reporting is or i i'm sure that it's different for everybody but i'm sure that there's there's some kind of prize up at the top that's lusted after yeah, I mean, I think everyone, when they go in, they have this idea that they want to be a network correspondent um, or a network anchor. Um, and then as you see what it takes to get there, fewer and fewer and fewer people want to do that. I would say that usually around, from what I've seen, it's around the four to six year mark where you 
either say people see people that are going to stay or they're they're out and they're going to go work in PR um, because you get to the point where you're you're like I want holidays with my fam my, with my family I want normal hours I don't want to work weekend mornings um, so my pinnacle um, would be you know to be a war correspondent foreign correspondent overseas that's not common but I would say you know a network anchor every college student has aspirations of that yeah is pr is that kind of like an adjacent field to this and like how what are the differences there and what are like the parallels or or similarities yeah it's just a natural segue um because you know how to write you know how to present a message um albeit you know, the truth or something that is handed out from a company or in a different agency. Um, but I would say eight, nine times out of 10, any friend, and there have been dozens and dozens that I can name right now off the top of my head that's gotten out of the business in the last five years. They just either go for work for a hospital system or for a police department. Um, yeah, and because you know how to tell a story. So it, it makes sense. Um, but it, it's just, some of them are, they're tough to lose. Cause you're like, dang, you're really good. And we needed you on our side. Right. Does it feel like losing them kind of to the enemy or is it something that you can kind of I cheer them say on the for? enemy? No, but <laughs> I'm putting words in your mouth here. Re- there are a lot of really good PR people, public affairs officers, public information officers, but it's our job. What we do is we ask questions of them and hold them accountable, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, police departments, local agencies. So, yeah, sometimes it does sting a little bit when you when you see a really great journalist go be a PIO for, you know, the city and you got to throw some hard questions at them. Yeah. You were talking about declining viewers or like this newer generation of people maybe being less concerned about news what's that about what is it people just don't care is it really a generational thing is it differences in consumption patterns and where we want to view news I think it's all of those um it's funny like people my age and younger when I you know go out and you know out and about meet new people like I don't ever especially when I was in local before and now like I don't ever assume that they saw me on television because I'm like you're not watching me like unless you're over 45 you're probably not watching local news um that's almost guaranteed I I can think of very few of my friends that consume it and you know if it comes across their phone we I share a lot of my stories on Instagram stories or on Twitter um, that's different, but you're not turning, you're not waiting for the six o'clock news to, to turn on, but it's also with, um, young journalists coming up that generation, I think has kind of put their foot down. And as me, I would have done anything. I probably would have taken even less than 23,000, which is so sad and just shows that <laughs> I was very lucky and not everybody could have done that. Uh, and I'm fully aware of that. Um, the, this younger group is like, no way, like you're going to pay me what I'm worth or I'm going to go somewhere else and good on them for doing that. We will be sure to make sure that your uh, boss doesn't hear this just in case they want to give you a pay cut after that. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I will say that uh, now 
I'm in a local newsroom again, but things are very different and I'm very grateful. It's, it's funny that you bring that up. And I guess I don't really pay much attention to like local news. Like you said, I might fall into that demographic, but I do pay much closer attention to writing like on the, the writing end. And it's interesting even just to see how we have like these famous New York times writers that are going to like write independently on like Substack, or, you know, they um, have a newsletter somewhere else on Twitter review or, or any of these other platforms. And it's such a different take on news and just anything when it's like, this is solely this person. How do you view that? Is that, am I kind of like, uh, following along the lines of what Absolutely. you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, this, the white book behind me is right there is um, my husband wrote that book off of one of the story. He's an investigative reporter um, off of one of the stories that he reported extensively and it ended up being a book. So yeah, there, there are different outlets and it is interesting, especially on the national level, you see these uh, writers who usually it was just the TV people, but now it is print journalists that really have this sense of celebrity. It happened largely through the Trump White House um, where you saw these standout reporters, but hey, if they're doing good work, I think it's great. I mean, if they're uncovering truth, asking the hard questions, however you can reach the masses, go for it. We don't have to get too political here or whatever, but uh, and this kind of falls into something that you alluded to a few minutes ago. You said something about people reporting on the, I could hear like the quotes, the truth being handed out. Do you think that changes in how, how and what news stations, both local, national, whatever, want to present things is stimulating the rise of independent uh, writers, independent journalists, everybody else in that space. Yeah, I think it's easy to, um, as someone that, it, there's a lot of people that are outside the media space that can look at the industry as a whole and um, criticize. Um, it's easy to, and again, I'll go back to the, the Trump White House. There was a lot of that. Um, and some of it was deserved, of course, uh, for our industry. Um, but I can say for myself, like I have never worked for a newsroom, for a news agency that has never not challenged me to ask questions. Um, but you have to remember that. It's easy to become, you know, sometimes you get to know a, a PIO, um, you trust what they say, okay, well, this is, we're going to trust that as fact, but then you always have to check yourself, um, because it is our job to, just because they say this happened, I mean, Uvalde is a perfect example of that. What was said last week by uh, Texas DPS has a week later been proven untrue, um, and at that point, you, we would have never thought that they would come out and not say the truth. And of course, we don't know if, you know, the details were sketchy at that point, even to them. But still, that's a perfect example of why it is so important for us to continue to ask those questions, no matter who the agency, whether it's your local small town police or all the way up to the White House. 
I'd imagine being like, especially like a new reporter in some setting, it could be like a major personal conflict of interest when you're being asked to report or maybe say something that you don't align with, maybe personally. Um, have you ever found yourself in that position? Well, I, I would say, so for you to say that maybe me saying something that I don't align with would um, maybe imply that I wasn't saying the facts, that I would be more of like an opinion piece. And that's, there's the problem. If I'm ever reporting opinion as fact, I shouldn't be doing that anyways. Um, but yeah, are there groups that I've had to report on and share their stories that I don't agree with? Of course, all the time. Um, but it is my job to go in there and to be as unbiased, middle of the road, not as I can be, but just period, full stop. Um, it's my husband always says um, it's the best compliment he can get when he's criticized by Republicans and criticized by Democrats. Uh, and they, you know, one accuses them of being a Republican hack. The other accuses them of being a Democratic hack. Great. I'm pissing everybody off. That means I'm doing my job. That means you're falling right in the middle where you want to be. Exactly. I'm glad that you said that because that kind of just made me realize why that was such a bad question to ask because it was like, oh, well, you know, ideally you're hoping to present what the facts are, not something that's like an opinion of yourself nor whomever you're reporting for. Agreed. But I will say there have been countless times where I have sat, you know, in a living room with a person who I could not disagree more with. Um, but I just have to shake my head and okay. And I put what they say on TV and then I put the other side because for the most part, there are always two sides to every story and it's my job to present both of them. Um, unfortunately, both sides don't always want to talk to you and that makes it difficult sometimes, but I at least have to try. How has becoming a multimedia journalist changed the way that you interpret information? personally, not like completely outside of a news story or anything you're in your just day-to-day -day life. Do you look at things differently? And do you find yourself obsessed with maybe getting to the bottom of something, uh, like chasing those facts, like we were just talking about rather than getting down to an opinion? I, I can't even imagine what it must be like to literally spend your entire like basically life and career like getting down to it's about finding out what's true right yeah um i will say that the longer you're in this business the more i certainly don't have i still don't have a work-life balance like that's non-existent <laughs> doesn't exist for this line of work um but i used to I would consume nothing on television, but CNN. And then I would watch, I would record every single local news show and see, cause you know, some of the stories I would be doing every other station would cover that day. Okay. And then I would watch them and see who did it better. Oh, he got that interview. I didn't get it. Well, you know, like <laughs> things like that, I would obsess over it. But now I think as, um, I've gotten older and especially as I've made this, you know, sharp left turn in my career trajectory. Um, I, there's, a, there's a little less of that. Like I 
am always thinking like a journalist, but I'm not as obsessed in my off time as I used to be. This is probably a question that would have been more fitting towards the beginning of our conversation, but I, it was something that I wrote down and like had to ask, like, what, what is an exciting time for you? Like personally, is it, let's say that not news related, you're not working or anything. I am guessing that an exciting night might be just like sitting home on the couch, like doing nothing. Like this is just silence maybe. Yes. That, or like, I just want to be on like a crazy trip to a wild place that is kind of off the grid, like mm-hmm. Wadi Rum Jordan and, you know, being a Bedouin camp, like that's my idea of amazing or um, doing something that's just a little different and that I can learn from. Um, but yeah, I do have kind of like, I'm either like full scale balls to the walls or I'm completely paralyzed in bed. <laughs> like <laughs> there's really no in between for me. I have to imagine that there's just like, like a literal kind of content treadmill that it, it seems like it would be hard to get off of in that line of work. Yes, absolutely. And, um, I think, again, I go back to, um, how my life has changed over the last year that has kind of reset it a little bit. And my priorities have shifted, not extremely, but a bit to the point where um, I'm not just obsessed with news all the time, but I'm still pretty obsessed. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's get in and unpack that. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, from early on that you wanted to be a foreign correspondent or um, a war correspondent, I think is the, the other the term that you use. You got to do that. Uh, or embed with some troops this last year. Is that right? Yeah, it was in 2020. Um, it, it was January 2020. I was working for the AP and um, it was amid all the rising tensions with Iran after Hassan Soleimani died. Um, the AP called me one Friday night and was like, hey, the 82nd, they're... Um, uh, QRF, Quick Response Force, or whatever they, you want to call it nowadays, um, is deploying uh, overseas. Can you go cover it? At this point, like I, it had always been on my radar that I wanted to cover the military, but I hadn't had that shot yet. Um, and I, so I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. I was so excited. Um, I drove out to Bragg early that morning. And I had my bag packed, like, of course, they weren't going to let me on the plane. Like, we, now I'm fully aware of what the DOD is like. Um, but I, I told the public affairs officer there, Lieutenant Colonel, um, I said, sir, I have my backpack just in case you want, you know, you have some extra room to the Middle East. And he was like, okay, who is this? Um, and then, so I covered it that day and in the weeks to follow, um, I covered, you know, the families that, of the soldiers that had left on the IRF. Um, I did multiple stories with, you know, family members back at Bragg because they're, they're deploying within eight to 20 hours. So that's traumatic on a family, no matter if you're ready for that or not. Uh, so I did that. And then about three weeks later, uh, I got a call from said Lieutenant Colonel 
And he said, Hey, uh, are your bags still packed? (laughs) (laughs) Basically. He was like, Hey, it's not cutter, but, uh, I'm sending some guys down to South America, to Colombia, um, in a couple weeks for a training exercise, exercise with the Colombian forces down there. Do you want to go? And like, I, it was one of those moments where like, I took the phone away and like covered it, like in the movies. And I'm like, like screaming. Um, but I was like, Oh, I'll talk to my bosses. Yes, sir. I'll get back to you. Um, but so to make a very long story short, I, uh, spent about 10 days, maybe it was a little less than that. Um, with the 82nd in about a hundred, hundred of them down in South America and the rest is history. Was it fun? Was it uh, everything you thought it would be? It w- Well, obviously it was everything I thought it would be because I came back and I went and saw a recruiter. Um, it, so joining the army had literally never crossed my mind. I um, was raised in a household that had the utmost respect for our service members. My grandfather was a battlefield commission during World War II. I'm married to a gold star son who lost his Green Beret father in Afghanistan in 05. Um, so that was very much like ingrained in me, the respect, but me, no. A soldier, no way, never. Um, but for some, some reason, the experience just clicked and I instantly just fell head over heels with that as cliche as it sounds um, with that camaraderie. And I was very much in a state at a point in my life that I was looking for something more. And there was. You, I want to kind of quote an interview that uh, you had, I think with your um, agency there in, in Charlotte, you said, uh, and I'm going to kind of roughly do this here, but Um, you said, I'm at a point in my life where I have to do something drastic. It gives me greater purpose and greater meaning, or I keep living in this state of mediocrity. That is like a really, really heavy sentence. Can you kind of unpack that and talk about where that was coming from? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, right in the midst of COVID. I was, I think I had expected to, so I I left my local news job. I went to the AP. I went to the largest international news organization, one of the most respected. And I thought, okay, this is it. Like, this is what I've been working toward. Um, And it didn't answer my questions. I was very much in a rut. Um, As a journalist, your work, I, I can almost speak for, I'm not going to speak for the entire profession, but if any of them were listening, I think a lot of them would agree. Your work is very much your identity. And I wasn't doing work that I thought was great. I mean, I was just 100% in a rut and I was depressed and I just felt like it was either I had to do something crazy, drastic, or like that was the turning point. Like I had to do something crazy or it was just going to be just status quo for the rest of my life. And then looking back at it with regret. And that was what I think I was most scared of. And it's such a scary feeling to kind of see yourself kind of waking up, um, you know, in 20, 30 years and asking a lot of what if questions. And um, 
I, there's a, a famous quote and I'm not sure I'm going to butcher it and I don't even know who said it, but it said something about like hell is waking up like one day, like at the end of your life and meeting the person that you could have been. I love and that. it's literally, I don't know how you could like say that to yourself out loud in the morning and not want to wake up and just like give a hundred percent every single day. 100%. Yeah. And I think that is what I was most scared of because once that idea crossed my mind, um, of enlisting, that's what I had in the back of my head was, okay, well now if I don't go through with this, will I always wonder? Mm -hmm. What did your husband say when you got back? I I'm sure that his jaw probably just like hit the floor, right? Of course. Um, so I was not an athlete, well, still I'm not an athlete, but I've had to improve those, those odds, obviously. Um, I like, but had not, not so much, not an athlete. Like I had no workout routine whatsoever. Um, I, I was as far away except for, you know, liking to get myself in quite a few dangerous situations on the job. Um, and being a bit of an adrenaline junkie, like I could not be further away of what we think of, unfortunately, as a society, when we think of a soldier, that was not me. <laughs> um, plenty of people out there now that are, you know, challenging that norm, which is amazing, but long before I ever did. Um, but so I remember I told him he grew up at Fort Bragg. He fully grasps the commitment. Um, and I, I, kind of have a, a tendency to come up with crazy ideas and then just like, ah, and then I move on to something else. So I think he thought it was going to be that. Um, but as I kept going through the process at first, one recruiter kind of blew me off um, because, you know, I walked in looking like me and not what he expected. Um, and so I had to go find another recruiter who said, yeah, we'll get you an OCS. Um, but as I got through the process and then really like when I started going through everything at MEPS and like, I had to do the freaking duck walk, that's when he was like, oh shit, she's serious. Okay. You know, and he, he'll say today, like biggest thing he wanted to make sure is that I knew what I was getting myself into. And maybe at first I didn't fully grasp that. Um, but he's 100% supportive. And so you ended up enlisting this last year. So I enlisted, I, the process started in January, February of 2020, okay. um, for OCS, it takes a little bit longer right, uh, right. The application process, but I raised my right hand in October of 2020. And then I shipped off to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri last March. Well, as somebody who is out now, just did four uh, long, but quick years, I don't know if you ever actually fully grasp what you're getting yourself okay, into. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I remember like getting out and leaving and kind of like driving off into the sunset to go home and was like, what the hell just happened? Oh, like, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> this is such a weird feeling. And um, it's interesting. Like I, 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 first of all, like this is something that I say usually after we stop recording and everything, but I would love to stay in touch and like continue to hear how your story develops and offer any kind of like assistance, um, just friendship, whatever that looks like. But I'm interested to hear how 
you feel your time in the army like develops in terms of like personal identity because you said something um before about like reporting that it, it had become your life and that that was your identity and that's something that you hear people in the military mm -hmm. talk about a lot mm -hmm. um especially like getting out and kind of struggling with that kind of crisis and you're uh you're doing the reserves correct i am okay was that a conscious thing is is that what you wanted did you consider active for for any minute of time not initially um i think now i wouldn't be surprised if maybe not in the near future but before i'm done with my military career i'm sure i will be active at some point um your husband I, listening is like you told me you weren't interested actually, no he was the one that he was the one that said it first he was like i bet you go active because i have loved this way more than i ever expected um i'll tell you the night before i shipped to leonard wood was the most panic inducing terrifying night of my life like i'm a 32 year old um we had just bought a new house like i am very blessed and had all the comforts that i could ever ask for and just like that it was gone and i was treated like trash so you wake um, up and somebody's yelling in your yeah, face and, you're and like, i was like i gave it all up what the actual fuck have i done like <laughs> Let me tell you the first two weeks of basic training, I would like go and, and here's the thing about me. I've gotten for the most part in the mill Twitter world, like I have gotten 99% support, overwhelming, like support and encouragement. There is that 1% where when I'm really honest about my story and say like that I've had to work extra hard to get my four mile run time down to pass OCS. And when I, you know, talk about how the first two weeks of basic training were hell on earth and how I like went to the bathroom stall and like cried silently. Like, I'm not going to lie about that. Like I could very well get on social media and act like it was easy, but for me, is it a lot easier for a lot of people? Sure. But for me, it was the biggest wake up call left turn that you could ever ask for. And it completely up, upended everything about my life. Um, so yeah, are people tougher than me? Blah, 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 whatever. I'm just, I am sharing my truth and that this process Albeit the basic training of nowadays is a lot easier than the basic training of vet bros days. I know it, um, but like it stretched me. And because of that, I'm 110% a different human being than I was a year ago um, in, in the best way. And I, I've said it too many times to count, but joining the army has been hands down the best decision I've ever made it's such like a personally inspiring feeling to yourself. And I think that probably the close people to you could probably attest to that same change. But like when you, you like feel yourself actively changing, mm -hmm. sometimes there's like weird periods of times where you like look back and you're like, Oh, you know, I'm like a little bit different, but certainly like that first six months. And even like, as your time progresses, like it is a drastic, change it, physically yep. mentally in yep. all the ways that you can think of 
and it's uncomfortable. Like, let me tell you, it probably would have been a lot easier for me to have stayed the course and I would have just, you know, continued to progress in journalism, whatever, but I would, would have been bored as hell. Um, now, did the army answer all of life's questions for me? Absolutely not. In fact, now I'm like even more confused about what I want to do and where I want to go, but in the best way possible. Um, and that would have never, that wouldn't have happened without me having to, you know, I, I giving up everything that was comfortable um, and having this experience. And, you know, the, the cool thing about the military is it's the great equalizer. Like I was, I wasn't, you know, a journalist. I was just another, while well, I was a specialist, that doesn't matter to a drill sergeant. I was just another private. And um, I made some incredible friends with people I would have never gotten to know and heard stories a million times more inspirational than mine is. Um, you know, people's why of why they choose to serve is really incredible. Um, you know, like the single moms, and dads for that matter that I met um, that were doing this for like far deeper reasons than, Hey, I was in a rut and I needed, you know, a reset. I, every time I want, like felt bad for myself at basic, I was like, Oh, you know, you have a three month old at home. Okay. I shouldn't be complaining. There is always somebody who has it worse. That I know, is but an absolute know, it's, fact. It puts things <laughs> into perspective. It does. I think that what you just highlighted there really points to the power of the personal story, which you've been talking about, because everything is, everything needs context, everything needs a backstory. There is such a large cohort of people and probably one of the most toxic things that the military has to offer is this embedded idea that there's something that you haven't done. And that you know, you, you even mentioned it already is like boot camps used to be so much harder or like there will always, always, always be that deployment that you didn't go on that one thing that didn't happen. And I think that one thing that just a couple, two cents of like personal advice or whatever, like don't listen to that shit because it really has nothing to do with, nor has any bearing on your personal story. I appreciate that. Yeah. And that, you know, that is something that's a constant in, in, in OCS, especially, um, you know, there's the people like me who are fresh in, um, and then there's the NCOs that have chosen the officer route, but the wealth that I learned from them is incredible, but it does, it's, you know, a constant reminder of, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I don't really have like a crazy army to-do list. Um, number one, I have to get my fucking jump wings or I will never be worth anything to all the 82nd Airborne paratroopers that inspired me to be here. Also, my husband is the son of a paratrooper and he frequently calls me a leg. So until I get those damn jump wings, I'm going to be worthless. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much like top of the list. Of course, a deployment, you always, I'm going to feel worthless until that. Um, but I, it's funny, a lot of people say to me, they're like, God, like I've got some, you know, 
salty NCO friends that are like, I can't wait till you like lose that excitement, like until the army wears you down, it's going to happen. Okay. I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. Like it's not all sunshines and roses. I am fully aware that everyone's army experience is not like this. And there are a lot of faults um, to the military more than we can ever talk about. Um, But so far, it has been great. I'm sure there will be valleys, but right now, just let me do my thing. <laughs> That's super inspiring to hear. I And there, the military is not short on people like that, that are looking to steal the happiness and just like the, um, we used to call it the, the light in somebody's eye. Like you can tell the day that they lose what you're talking about. And there's just kind of this little glimmer that kind of I will say that my current commander, he calls me a golden retriever and he says, I don't think you are ever going to lose that and you shouldn't. So I'm hoping I will keep on being that annoying, excited golden retriever butter bar. I hope so too. We were talking before we started recording about the differences and or similarities between journalism and the military what has stood out to you so far? Um, I, I would say one of the biggest similarities is um, just accuracy. You know, that's what you learn day one in both careers. Like you do it right the first time. If you don't, you stay until you do it right. Um, it's, I've seen these you know, these conversations with vets that get out and are amazed in the civilian world that you know, at five o'clock when your shift is over, people just go home even when the job isn't done because that's not how it works in the military. But it's very similar in journalism. Like you don't go home until the job is done. So I think that work ethic um, is very similar. Although I will say like, I thought journalists work insane hours like the the concept of a 24-hour cq shift would just blow most people's minds even journalists um but you know always always i i can't pin it down to why so many veterans soldiers sailors marines whatever are so like in tune with their curiosity or current events they're kept up on the readers they're um always looking for you know what's going on but that's what why i think so many veterans make great journalists because it's an easy segue um and i don't know why that is but there are a lot of um great examples of that and one of my good friends ap reporter jim laporta former marine excuse me, you don't say former Marine, Marine Jim Laporta. Um, he is a perfect example of that. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Right? I, yeah. Hey, I did. I made that mistake in a news story. Like in my first job, I said former Marine and I got 57 emails. So I'll never make that mistake. Are you still a Marine? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Is there anything that you have learned in this uh, year or so that you've been in that you think has made you a better reporter? I think um, that's a great question. And 100%, well, on the surface, like nothing stresses me out anymore. (laughs) 
Like, I just think that, <laughs> again, I go true. back to shipping off to basic training at 32 and I'm like, oh, okay, I did that. My job is, is not going to stress me out. Um, but also just like the connections, the deep, deep relationships and connections that I formed um, at basic and OCS. And listen, I don't want people to w- listen to this and be like, oh, she's only been to basic and OCS. She, you know, I am well aware. I know what I don't know. And I know I have plenty to learn. But so far, what I've learned, those connections have just made me like, I think, listen deeper um, and want much more than what's on the surface of somebody. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, the military has taught me is obviously we talk about really shitty situations, build these unbreakable bonds. Um, and I've tried to translate that in, in even just like conversations with people I'm interviewing, you know, you, you know, certain questions to ask and you know, like, okay, there's maybe something more there. Um, and I, I definitely think those are skills that I've learned in my just year in the army. Since I've started this podcast, I've had the pleasure of having several great writers on, and we were just talking about why veterans maybe make great writers or journalists. A particular interview stands out. And one of the guys, he said, that in the military, you make the perfect writer because ultimately at the end of the day, you become a people person. You're thrust into abnormal environments surrounded by people you don't know that have different values and different ideas about the way that the world works. And they give you this problem and you need to figure it out. And there's no option to not figure it out. And that forces this type of cohesion with other people that is very difficult to replicate hmm. in any other circumstance. And that is that, you know, those weird trying circumstances that you're just talking about, it's it's very, very difficult to replicate outside the service. Absolutely. And, you know, in saying that, like coming home from training was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, I, I thought that I would just bounce back into normal life, but it wasn't like that at all. In fact, like there were some, you know, some rough days when I got home because you build these just unbreakable friendships to the point, you know, I still talk to these people every single day. One day you're there and one day they're not. Um, So that was, that was a tough adjustment. And also like the people around you just expecting you to be the same person and you can't be the same person um, after, you know, going through something like that. Um, so yeah. What advice would you give to an aspiring reporter, journalist, anybody in that space? My best advice is just go for it. I mean, find somebody that you want to emulate and just consume their work nonstop. I mean, that's what I did. And then be shameless about reaching out to them. Um, One of my, if not my greatest mentor in this business is Gary Tuckman at CNN. Um, And he is my mentor because uh, we were covering the Charleston church shooting and we were at a memorial event. Um, His live shot was right next to mine. I walked up and I was like, hi, 
really sorry to bother you. I'm a huge fan of your work and I, I would love feedback, good, bad, whatever. Um, and I started reaching out to him. He started watching my stuff and the rest is history. And he even wrote me a basic training. I mean, this is a CNN correspondent who for years has been a constant because I reached out, um, you know, starting out in college, whether you're in your first newsroom, you're not going to get that feedback. And because of that, you're not going to get any better and you're going to get stuck. So the only way to prevent getting stuck is to find people you want to be, or at least want to emulate and just reach out, be shameless. I mean, my husband always says that, like, he's like, I wish I could be more shameless because he doesn't really have any like crazy mentors like I do, because I don't care. I'll just ask them, whatever. Mm -hmm. What are they going to say? No, who cares? <laughs> you got to do something drastic. Uh, hey, like and I'm, I'm big on that, right? <laughs> you are, as we found out. And uh, I'm happy to attest to the fact that you practice what you preach because you uh, accepted this as a cold message on Twitter. So thank hey, you so much. A disaster, but it wasn't. So <laughs> hopefully, as I always say, after I do anything like this, I hope I didn't say anything that would get me in trouble. So God, hopefully myself, <laughs> you can't get in trouble on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> nobody's really pushed that boundary yet. So <laughs> Sarah, this has been absolutely fantastic. I would love to point people to find you on whatever platform that you'd like to, to be found on. Um, where can people go to find you if they want to reach out? My, you know, biggest outlet, definitely the Twitterverse uh, storyteller SBM. And then on Instagram, I don't really have a following there, but I don't really care. Um, it's it's just opposite because I couldn't get it. So it's SBM Storyteller. Um, but I love sharing like my video work on Instagram. Last night I shared a, a story with a Gold Star family that I shot yesterday for Memorial Day. Um, so if it's another outlet that you know you can get people's stories out there, I'm all about it. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.